All right, welcome to another week of ICU Doc Talk. Thanks for joining me. Um, this week, I'm just going to tell stories. I know that's, be honest, that is what people want. They just want stories. They just want exciting medical stories. So I'm that's I'm going to give it to you today. All right, here we go. For, actually, first, before I get into that, you know how, like, podcasts will, like, start a a plea for, like, we need, you know, we need to keep the lights on and they, they'll do a, like a, you know, a several weeks run where they need donations. My, I, I, I want to say the exact opposite. I don't want your money. And not only that, I have created no venue for you to give me money <laughs> to run this. I'm specifically a public service. There's no commercials. I have not, I don't have any endorsements. There's no pay advertising whatsoever. So my opinion, my medical opinions, and my and I often, as you know, give political opinions and opinions about society, all that stuff. It is just from the, me, one guy. Um, that's it. Okay. So I specifically, this is the part of the podcast where it might start out that way. Hey, we want money. I do not want your money, and there's no way you can even give it to me. Anyway, so let's go with some stories. So these stories are going to come from many from many different cities and many different hospitals. Some are in the past. Some are more recent. They are all anonymized. I will keep the gender of patients out. I will keep the age of patients out. These are 100% anonymous um, to protect identities. But they are all real stories and that I have been witness to. The first story uh, was from a trauma hospital that I worked at. It was a level one trauma hospital, which means we get a lot of traumas, a lot of really severe traumatic injuries, gun injuries, um, penetrating wounds, suicides, things like that. I guess I should have a trigger warning that this podcast will involve acts of violence um, and gore. All right. So first up, I was, uh, it was late night. It was probably like 1 a.m. And I heard about a patient who had drowned in a lake, a body, a large body of water who was out um, late at night. And this person, the patient was with their significant other they and both these people they were found someone called in that they went out like paddle paddle boating or something like that and they you know never came back so the coast guard or whatever it's called the coast guard was out there looking for and they found the patient they found the pa- patient's significant other um had had died but the patient this patient they were started resuscitating and 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 they must have had a pulse or something because they kept going. And here's the story I heard. Oh, we have a patient coming in who's um, young, like 19, 18. And, and they've been doing chest compressions for 90 minutes. And they're still doing them. And they're going to crash them to the OR to put the patient on ECMO. So I was a resident at this time. My first thought was, that's a ridiculous idea. They're, they're, that's just a dead body. Someone who's resuscitating for 90 minutes is a dead body. That's just doing chest compressions on a dead body. That was my first thought. So anyway, so we're like, all right, you know, a surgeon wanted to put the patient on ECMO. And I'm like, all right, you know, it's fine. Whatever. Uh, so we're sitting waiting for the patient. Uh, patient comes through the doors. They have a Lucas machine on. I've, I made a TikTok about a Lucas machine. It's basically, imagine like a big piston. So back it up. So when you when we give chest compressions you know someone gets on the chest with two with two palm you know a palm on the chest we're going up and down to the chest to circulate blood well there's a machine called the lucas machine in the united states anyway and we call it the lucas i'm sure there's other brand names it's basically it's like imagine an arc 
that goes over a patient's chest and a piston that goes up and down and pumps on the patient's chest. It's a machine. So this patient comes in on a Lucas. It's a very small person, the patient. And they are just thumping up and down. I mean, the body is rattling up and down from the Lucas. It looks very violent. If you haven't seen one, you can look up a video if you want to see what this looks like. So this patient's been on this Lucas. They were on a helicopter. They were on, and I'm just like, I was just scoffing at this because, and I know that sounds insensitive, but it was like, why are we doing this? This is completely futile. This is pointless. This patient's been getting chest compressions for 90 minutes. There's no reason to do this. This is an enormous waste of resources. This patient is dead. So we bring the patient in the OR, and uh, you know, as the anesthesia team, we we assess the airway. The patient's already intubated. Tons of just pulmonary edema and blood coming out of the breathing tube. Um, just just all this stuff back up. The patient obviously does not have a pulse. So we're like, okay, so uh, you know, we I we don't really st- I don't remember all the anesthetic that we did. It wasn't we didn't do that much anesthesia because again, it's like it's a dead body. You don't really need to put anesthesia on a dead body. And I was just skeptical the whole time and just had a bad attitude, which I shouldn't have, of course, right? I shouldn't have that. Anyway, they uh, so the the surgeons start cannulating, putting a patient on ECMO, which was a, a which was a you know a procedure I wasn't that familiar with as a resident. Now I am because I I do it myself. I put patients on ECMO and I take care of patients on ECMO. Um. Anyway, so you know they put they put a big line a cannula we call it or a large catheter in the in the groin two in, you know one two in the groin and on either side and then we get we we get the heart back um and the, you know the heart starts pumping and we're like oh great so we stop the lupus and everybody cheers and again i'm still all skeptical I'm like well the heart's back but the brain is gone you know there's not going to be any meaningful neurological recovery which isn't, you know, just my, my skepticism and cynicism. It didn't make me, like, not do things. You know, obviously, I was participating in the care and helping resuscitate the patient. I wasn't, you know, refusing. To, I don't want to get the wrong impression. Anyway, so we got the heart back, and the patient's on ECMO, and, uh, you know, so that's the end of that. So we, the patient went to the ICU. And I was like, well, you know, the patient will be brain dead, which is death, right? Brain dead is death. Um, so... <laughs> That patient left the hospital like a week later, completely alive and totally neurologically intact. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And and I, I'm sure what you were screaming at me this whole time, if you know, you know, a drowning victim, a young patient who drowned is a very good candidate to put on ECMO uh, because their their body temperature is low and it, it that provides neurological preservation. That's a very good candidate to put on ECMO. So that's one thing I didn't really have a good insight in as a resident, as an anesthesia resident at the time. So I learned a lot from that, right? Um, so you do need to be selective with who you put on ECMO. But if there is a young drowning victim, I don't. it doesn't matter how long you've been doing chest compressions. Bring them. Send them. Send them to a hospital that can put them on ECMO because they, they can survive. And they can have meaningful recovery. And they can live the rest of their lives. They can. doesn't mean they will. Um, that was a valuable lesson I learned from that. All right, this next story involves children and, and extreme violence. Uh, it'll probably take me f- seven, eight minutes to tell this story. So if you don't want to hear this, skip skip ahead that much. It's graphic, okay? Um, so it, it's, it, this is disturbing. Um, so if you have a low, I would have a low threshold to skip this. Skip this story, okay? About six or seven minutes ahead in the podcast. Um, so again, this is when I was a resident, um, and it was, I was in the trauma bay doing anesthesia up and down. 
uh, I'm in the OR doing anesthesia, and then we we also when there's a trauma, when there's a bad trauma in the emergency part department, we have a pager that goes off that I go down in case that patient needs to immediately go to the OR so that I can take them with the surgical team. So I help out in the emergency department all the time there. So it was a gunshot. So there's a lot of gang violence uh, where I did residency um, and gun violence. So I come into the so it's a code, you know, trauma code, gunshot. That's all I know. So I come in and um, come into the room, and there's, I look on the left in the resuscitation bay, and there's a child uh, uh, um, that's about, looks about 12, and uh, that's doing, getting chest compressions. And then I look right across in the other resuscitation bay, and there's another child getting chest compressions, um, maybe about 14. And I'm hearing the story from the EMS who brought them in, and they're sisters. And this was a retaliation for, for gang violence um, that had happened a week before that these two children were targeted and, uh, um, and were uh, victims of, of some sort of retaliatory gun violence. So um, I, I go help out and with one of the kids, and um, you know, we're giving blood, and she has, she has gunshot wounds uh, in her belly in her chest and we keep getting so we we are doing chest compressions we're giving blood and, and the emergency the emergency medicine people are running the code blue or the cardiac arrest i'm, I'm also just they're just helping out with the airway whatever and and giving suggestions things like that um and uh we, we get we get uh rosc rosc means return of spontaneous circulation rosc that means we stop doing chest compressions we have a heart rhythm so we get that. We keep getting that. And we're like, oh, great. You know, maybe we can. The, the point, the, the whole goal is to stabilize the patient enough to then go to the operating room to then um, open up the patient's abdomen. And then and then a surgeon can take care of whatever bleeders are going on. That's the, you know, this is part of what trauma uh, medicine is about. You stabilize the patient enough. You know, if we're doing chest compressions, maybe we need, you know, they need to get stabilized in the emergency department first. Anyway, so we keep, but the, but we this patient, we keep losing her pulse and keep going back and back and back. Chest compressions, giving blood, losing pulse. So, but she wasn't really bleeding a whole lot. Um, anyway, we, we finally turn her to her side and, and the back of her skull. Her, um, is just, there's just exposed brain tissue. Um, just just, just kind of white, stringy brain tissue that's just out, out of the brain, um, out, out of the skull. So, you know, when we all saw that, we knew that she was, that was it. Um, that, that's not an uh, injury that's, you know, that can be repaired. So, so that that patient was called uh, dead at that time. Unfortunately, um, her sister did go to the operating room, but but died there as well. That's there's no moral, there's no good end to that story. That's just um, <laughs> trauma that uh, that that those young young um, patients went through, that their family went through that everybody that helped resuscitate went through that will carry with them the rest of their lives as a result of uh, gun violence. Um, and if you know anything about me and my TikTok, you know how I feel about gun restriction, gun control in the United States. It's, it's uh, morally repugnant, the rights that gun ownership has in this country. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that story. Sorry, that was not a fun story. <clears throat> let's, uh, let's go to a better story with a better ending. Um, so I had a patient who had a, 
um, a bunch of uh, how do I major back surgery, a bunch of hardware put in their spine, like up and down, like thoracic spine all the way down to to their uh, what's the word? Uh, their sacrum. So it was a big back surgery, and then that all got infected, unfortunately, which can happen. That's not like a you know something that the surgeon did wrong. It's just something. It's just an inherent thing that can happen. <clears throat> so it all needed to come out. So I did anesthesia for this patient. For It was a washout, opening up the back and washing out that infection out. Now, this patient had something called hokum, um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which we called hokum. And uh, that, that's, that's where that can be a cause of sudden cardiac death, where there's just there's a little bit too much uh, heart tissue in the way of the left. It's called the left ventricular outflow tract, the LVOT of blood that pumps th- from from the heart to the rest of the body and it can it can impede flow of uh, blood so much that it can cause someone to die now so one of the key managements when you take care of someone with hokum is you got to keep their heart rate low because a high heart rate can make that obstruction worse you want to keep their heart rate like you know 60 to 80 don't really want to get higher than that and you want to keep their what, what we call their preload and their afterload both up the reason you want to do this so if you're familiar with this language i'm saying if not don't worry about it but you want to keep their preload and their afterload up because you want you're stenting open that LVOT track by doing that. So you want to avoid wild swings in blood pressure. You want their SVR, their systemic vascular resistance, to stay nice and high, which can get which can go low when we give anesthetics, and and their preload can also drop when we give anesthetics. So you got to keep all these things in mind. You want to make sure they're in sinus rhythm. <clears throat> you know, if they're an AFib or something, get them out of that. Anyway, you got to avoid all these things. So I knew all this stuff about this patient. So I took care of this patient. Did the anesthesia for for this patient, um, for this washout. And guess how the patient did? The patient did great. I knew all these things, took care of this patient, boom, it was fine. Got through it just fine. Um, had a washout, but still had that hardware, that infected hardware in place and to get removed at a later date. So that, went all, that all went fine. About three days later, now the patient is booked to have the hardware removed. And I happen to be this, the anesthesiologist who's also covering the case. And that was just a coincidence. Um, you know, if you're not familiar with the anesthesia world, just because you take care of a patient a few days before, it doesn't mean you're the same anesthesiologist. It's just, it's the luck of the draw if you're on that same shift, et cetera. So I'm like, oh, great. I know this patient. Perfect. I know she's got um, left ventricular, you know, outflow obstruction. She has this hypertrophic, you know, hokum. So I was like, okay, I know, you know, I know how to treat this. The patient's going to do fine. But it was a big surgery, big surgery, getting all that hardware taken out hours and hours and hours and hours. <clears throat> so patient, you know, we, we get her off just fine. Uh, we induce with anesthesia. Everything's doing fine. Uh, we put in all these lines that are needed. Everything's going great. Uh, the patient is flipped onto her stomach. Is her head is pinned by, uh, like her skull is pinned so it doesn't move. And she's in a kind of a suspension on her stomach, on her belly, so the the surgeons can do their surgery. About four hours in, I come into the room. With a nurse anesthetist is uh, in the room with me, and 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 they're providing primary anesthesia care while I'm supervising other rooms as well and um, the um, I'm looking at the arterial line tracing which is the pulse while I'm standing there and it just kind of starts <laughs> diminishing diminishing and it flatlines and I was like uh is this real is this happening at this moment and the nurse was like nurse the CRNA the nurse anesthetist was like uh yeah so let me just so the patient is going to cardiac arrest four hours in and Believe me, we were doing our due diligence. Uh, the patient had blood loss, but we were the patient had plenty of blood, plenty of volume. We were doing all the things that we knew how to do for hokum to make sure things weren't going wrong. Um, so 
and just put it in perspective, this is now a patient who's in cardiac arrest. Their back is completely open in a surgical field. Surgeons are working in a sterile fashion. They're on their patient is pinned. Their head is pinned. They're, they're on their belly, and they're in cardiac arrest. That's a big problem. So uh, first thing we did was give some, you know, some medications to get the blood pressure up, some vasopressin, lots of vasopressin, lots of phenylephrine. Gave him phedrine. At this point, I had to give epinephrine. I, of course, I want to avoid tachycardia in a patient who has hokum, but the patient was not responding to any of the other vasopressors. At the same time, I'm telling the surgeons, this patient's in cardiac arrest. Uh, you need to bring in, and you know, telling the nurse circulator, bring in a stretcher, bring it in. We need to flip the patient and do chest compressions. Now, I said those things very loudly and very directly, right? When, when that, something like that is happening, you don't, there's no, like, waffling, right? The surgeons, surgeons want to hear what the anesthesiologist has to say. If something's wrong, they want to hear it very direct. Uh, you know, so if you're an anesthesia provider or something like that, be direct. Um, so I was like, the patient is in cardiac arrest. Bring the stretcher. we got to flip and start chest compressions. <laughs> you know, if I say something like that, everybody's moving, right? And i got to say that the surgeons just did a, a remarkable job uh, putting putting down some quick uh, kind of sterile uh, pack, packaging, some sterile, uh, what's the word, dressing all over the back so it doesn't get infected and just mobilizing. I mean, it's just, a, it was beautiful, you know, how quickly they, they moved, these neurosurgeons. Uh, and then I called the code blue, you know, our, in the United States, the, the code for cardiac arrest. And I got a bunch of support, a lot of other anesthesiologists in the room, lots of help right away, right, instantly. And before reflipping the patient, I, I noticed the patient starts rattling in the bed. And I was like, why is the patient light? Meaning the anesthetic's light. This doesn't make any sense. This patient should be deep. And I was like, why is this happening? And I, I looked down, and one of my colleagues is down there um, pumping from below with his fist on the patient's chest to do chest compressions. And you know what? It was working. I looked at the arterial line tracing, and the, the, it was generating a pulse. So that was really amazing. And that colleague, is, he's a great guy. He's also a critical care colleague that I work with. Anyway, so we flipped the patient to the stretcher on, onto her back. She's still in cardiac arrest. We did a, like a, a round of you know, CPR. And, and then the patient went into VTAC uh, and got a shock came out of that and then and then we got rosk remember that rosk uh, return of spontaneous circulation <clears throat> so she do, she was okay so she didn't she had very uh, limited time in a low flow state meaning i wasn't very concerned about any neurological injury so that's always something in the back of my mind when i'm resuscitating a patient doing chest compressions and things like that you want to think how long is this patient not having good flow to their brain um should i be concerned are we entering a medical futility zone you know the zone of medical futility where We've been doing chest compressions, and the brain has been in a low flow state for 30, 40, 50 minutes. And, you know, the chances of meaningful neurological recovery really start going down the drain. That was not the case with this patient. I, Without a doubt, I was like, you know, her brain is fine. She, she's going to neurologically recover from whatever low flow state that she was in during this cardiac arrest. But now I'm in this situation. So, uh, you know, me and all their care team. So we have this patient. Her back is completely open um, surgically. It's totally open. Um, it's covered, but uh, it's open. She's stable, um, but now I'm like, okay, front thing we need to figure out what happened. So I had one of my uh, colleagues, a cardiac anesthesiologist, put a transesophageal um, echocardiogram down the patient's um, esophagus to look at the heart, and sure enough, we see obstruction going on. So we know that's the cause. Despite, despite our best efforts, the patient went into this during the, during the case. So she's stable, um, and we have we 
she's not arresting again. So I, so it's now, and this is where things get challenging. So you, you know, you resuscitate a patient, but then, but then a lot of times it's, what do you do? You know, what do you do after you get ROSC? That's always the question to ask. And in this setting, you know, I turn to this, to our surgical staff, the neurosurgeon, I'm like, what, um, you know, is this patient's spine stable enough to leave the OR and go to the ICU? Because at this point, when you have cardiac arrest like this, you should stop the surgery and, um, you know, you should abort and not expose the patient to dangerous anesthetics and an operation that's going to cause it to happen again. The surgeon was like, I need at least 45 minutes to put that spine in a stable enough spot so the patient doesn't have spinal injury. I was like, all right. So basically what the surgeon is telling me, we cannot leave the operating room. They, they had much more work to do than 45 minutes. They had hours and hours ahead of them. But what he was saying is we can, I can stabilize the spine, get, him, get this patient to the ICU, um, stabilize the patient there, and, and then the patient come back to the operating room, you know, another day. So I was like, okay, you know, that's the situation we're faced with. So if we made the decision to, and we had to, to put the patient back into pins, flip them back, flip her back onto her belly, get everything going again and to see how she does, you know, she did great. We were able to get her back. Uh, the surgeon stabilized her spine. She went to the neuro ICU. She woke up there, had a, had a, she was totally neurologically intact. She had her spine fixed later in that week. She was extubated, totally neurologically intact. She did, she did amazing. It was, it was a great, you know, very successful resuscitation, very big team effort. It was great. All right, let's go to the next story. <clears throat> so as a critical care doctor, I resuscitate and do chest compressions and all that stuff. I don't actually do chest compressions, right? As the, as the team leader, I don't do chest compressions, right? I lead the team. Anyway, whatever. Uh, so I, I respond to many, many rooms where a patient is, you know, dying or not doing well. Um, so here's, here's another story. There's a code blue, blue called, uh, in a, like a procedure room, a, a patient is getting, um, uh, an ERCP, uh, what, what does that stand for? I, man, that there's sometimes there's acronyms you use, you see and use for years over over the years so many times you just forget the acronym, but you know what it is. Uh, it stands for uh, endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography, ERCP. Anyway, so the patient's in cardiac arrest. They go into the room and they're doing chest compressions, and everyone's you know trying to figure out what's going on, and, which is the typical thing. And I listen to the patient's lungs, et cetera, et cetera. They're still in cardiac arrest. So uh, I had a prior episode where I talked about point-of-care ultrasound, right? We put an ultrasound on a patient's heart or lungs or belly to try to give us a clue about what's going on. And in this case, you know, as we're doing chest compressions, I, I do that. And I take the, I take the cardiac probe and I, I put it on the heart. And what did I see? I see air bubbles everywhere, everywhere. What I mean by that, not just in the right side of the heart. So when, when someone, when you want to, when a nurse or an anesthesiologist, anesthetist just gives medicate like an IV medication push through an IV, a little bit of bubbles gets through there, and that's normal. That's fine. Um, a little bit of bubble going into the IV tubing that goes into the body, it's fine. Small small volume bubbles are are not harmful. Large volumes, you know, like twenty cc's, thirty cc's, forty cc's all at once, that's going to cause a problem. If you put all, if you push a bunch of air into the right side of the heart into the lungs, you might have obstruction of flow, and it, you could potentially cause cardiac arrest. But small bubbles, a little at a time, it's not a big deal. And oftentimes when I'm looking at a patient's heart and, uh, you know, in the ICU and I have a cardiac probe on their chest, I can see and I, and I can see bubbles come to the right side of the heart. And I'm like, oh, and I'm like, oh, you just, uh, I'll, be, I'll look and I'll see the nurse just gave some medication. I'm like, oh, that explains the bubbles. And there's even a bubble test that we, that we can do that are, uh, 
an ultrasonographer can do to look for a, uh, a hole in the septum of the heart called a PFO, a patent foramenal valley. That's a bubble test. And if you see bubbles crossing over from the right side to the left side of the heart, then you know um, then th maybe there's a PFO. And you can also visualize that with other methods. Anyway, so I saw air everywhere. What I mean by that, every chamber of the heart, I saw air. Full of air. That's unusual. There shouldn't be a bunch of air on the left side of the heart. That's weird. Um, so I was basically like, I knew what happened. Um, you know, some air had somehow been put into the vascular system. Like carbon dioxide had been put in the vascular system. The patient had cardiac arrest from that. So you can have air, if you put enough air into the right, into a vein, um, through like a surgical procedure, enough air can, can get through the capillary system of the lungs and get to the left side of the heart and go out to the left side of the body. It can happen. So don't, you know, if you're a, if you're someone who knows what I'm talking about, like a practitioner of some sort, uh, it doesn't mean there's a P, it doesn't necessarily mean there's a PFO. If you get massive, massive air going to the right side, it can get through the pulmonary vascular, it can go to the left side, and can cause, and this can cause cardiac arrest, it can cause air embolism to the brain, stuff like that. So immediately when I saw that, I was like, this is clearly, this is air embolism, which is a complication that can happen from a procedure like this. Um, it's rare, but it's a possibility. You know, it's one of those risks that should be discussed. Um, ultimately, that patient did fine. Patient did fine. Uh, we got we got we got the patient back, and it wasn't so much air that it didn't overcome the system, and it didn't like go to the brain. I mean, sure, I'm, of course, some got to the brain, but it wasn't enough that it overloaded the organs, so that you know it didn't it didn't cause um, ischemia time, you know, ischemic injury to the organs, uh, and that patient did just fine, absolutely fine. All right, uh, let's see another story. <clears throat> um, so there was a uh, there was a patient who was fairly young who had a, a history of something called Prince Metal uh, Coronary Artery Disease, which is a, or I should say, Prince Metal Vasospasm, where the, the vessels to your heart, um, you know, when those get blocked, that can cause a heart attack. But this patient had uh, this disease where the, those vessels spasm at random times, at very severe and um, and causing causing her to go into cardiac arrest, and it had, and she had a known history of this, and had been treated in the ICU and had left the ICU uh, many times, you know, several times before. And you know, it, it was so bad at a point that there was even ideas floating of her getting a heart transplant. Anyway, so I was on the um, ECMO service as a as a ECMO attending, uh, fielding consults, and I heard about this patient in a different hospital that I knew was there. She was getting transferred here to our cardiac. Um, ICU, not the cardio, cardiosurgical ICU, which is where I was attending, but cardiac ICU. And the attending there gave me, who's very, 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 very smart guy. I highly respect his opinion about a lot of things. And when he talks to me, I listen. And he was like, here, this, this patient's coming. I'm a little worried about her. Um, you know, we'll see what we can do here. But I, you know, I, I wonder if she needs to eventually go on ECMO as a heart transplant candidate. I was like, yeah. And I looked up her chart and I was very worried about her as well. So she finally got to our main campus, and I went and saw her, and oh, she was not doing well. She was on very high-dose epinephrine, norepinephrine, and vasopressin, very, very high doses. Uh, the attending I was talking to was, was floating a, a swan catheter, a swan-gans catheter, or a, PA, a pulmonary artery catheter to get more numbers. And as we're standing there, and, and I came in and saw her, I mean, she was on extremely high doses of these things and really clamped down. Her vessels were very clamped down. She was in cardiogenic shock, really doing poorly. 
and she had no contraindications, right? So I make a decision on the spot about if a patient should be put on ECMO. And I'm talking VA ECMO, veno-arterial ECMO, um, for cardiac arrest or, or for, you know, heart failure. She was in cardiogenic shock, obviously. And I was like, this is a, this is a young patient, relatively young. And she doesn't have any known, you know, there's no, she doesn't have a neurological injury. She was intubated at this time as well. She had a breathing tube. She doesn't have any known neurological injury. She doesn't have any advanced cancer. Um, so she was checking all my boxes. And he was like, you know, what do you think? You know, should we put this patient on ECMO? I'm like, yes, let's do it right now <laughs> because she's going to arrest. And it was like the moment I said that she went into cardiac arrest and we were doing chest compressions. So I activated ECMO and it was just, it was just, it was just a beautiful ballet of uh, well, okay, wait, that's an exaggeration. It was not a beautiful ballet. What this means is, so when I activate ECMO, uh, a bunch of people come, a bunch of resources. The ECMO machine comes, all of the materials, all of the equipment needed to put that patient on ECMO arrives. It also alerts a cardiothoracic surgeon to come. Um, but since all those things were out, I started just uh, um, putting, you know, they're doing chest compressions, the, the cardiac team. So I started prepping the patient's groin, putting needles in the femoral vessels, um, getting access, IV access, or getting, you know, central access, and ECMO machine, all that stuff came. Other help came. A, a cardiothoracic surgeon eventually showed up. Another colleague of mine showed up, and together we all put this patient on VA ECMO. Um, and it took about it took about 30 minutes, which was which is pretty good. That's, that's a pretty good number. While we're doing chest compressions, we got her on. And then we were worried about uh, immediately from there, she went down to uh, IR, um, or I, I should say the cardiac cath lab because she, we placed a, we had them place a distal perfusion catheter. If you're interested in knowing that is to help preserve the limb, the leg, because one of our ECMO cannulas catheters can block blood flow to the leg and you can lose your leg. It can die. So that was placed. And then, and then an impella we also had placed in the left side of the heart, um, because I can talk about it and I've talked about it in other episodes when you put someone on VA ECMO and if their heart is not pumping very well, that retrograde flow can, can distend the left ventricle and it can kill the left ventricle. And the idea for this patient is either she's going to recover or she needs a heart transplant. It's one or the other. Um, so so uh, the impella can, it's a little small, it's a, it's a small pump that we snake, that I don't do it, but an interventionist, interventionist does. It's, you snake it up into the LV, the left ventricle, and it's a small pump that helps to continually decompress the LV so you don't have over distension, so you don't, so you don't you know, kill the heart, basically. So that was placed. So we successfully placed the patient on that, um, and the patient was uh, listed for a heart transplant and received a heart transplant. So um, that was a very, very, you know, uh, that, that was the intended outcome with that by emergently placing someone on VA ECMO, and that is a part of my job. That's that's one of the things that I, that's, that I do. All right. Sorry, that's it for story time. I know I, I wish I had time to do more, but I, I can do more podcasts like this. I obviously have story after story after story I can share. Let's move on to our book discussion for this week. <clears throat> the book is called Evil Geniuses, The Unmaking of America by Kurt Anderson. Uh, this is, the guy's an author. He's a, he's like a, he's a, he's been a host of, of a public radio. He's just, dude, dude, this dude has been a lot. He's done a lot of stuff. He's been a co-editor at magazines. Um, he's been a columnist for New York, The New Yorker, other stuff. He's a smart guy. I, I follow him on uh, Twitter. Anyway, I was kind of reluctant to read this book because the the for one thing the title and the cover looks like it's very conspiratorial but that's not what this book is um this was written in 2020 august 2020 it's about 430 pages this book is about neoliberalism um and 
I guess uh, I was really, so despite my like hesitancy to read the book based on how it was marketed, I really found an engaging and really like poignant, well-researched catalog of the events leading to modern America, where we're at right now, how, how we arrived at this spot. There's, and this book really covers a lot of important details. The, the bulk of the book addresses the big elephant in the room, which is big business control since the 1980s has led to ballooning wealth concentration and disparity not seen since the 1920s. He gives a really welcomed but brief history of America from, from the 1700s to the 1960s, and then really zooms in on the recent 50 years, decades, and the crucial events, cultural, you know, the culture and decisions that were made, which have steered us towards a, a very real dystopia in which Americans and not and Western countries very much live in today. Anderson really brings a timely phrase into my mind, the political economy. That is how the existing economy is shaped, molded, and codified by whoever is in control, regardless of actual economic metrics. The changes wrought in the 1960s brought America into a cultural and economic flux. Turnover of ideas, fashion, tastes, and television became an expected part of American life. At this time, overt greed and big business takeover was something generally abhorred by the public, particularly with the rejection of Barry Goldwater, the fringe libertarian, uh, you know, conservative libertarian presidential candidate who lost to LBJ. By the time the 1970s rolled around and the business roundtable, uh, which included business elites like the Kochs and the Coors and Scaife and others, they put forth a unified effort to normalize big business once, once more by a way of influencing politics and culture through the proliferation of political think tanks, which behave as tax shelters. The, the Powell memo provided the manifesto for this group, from which uh, has also borne Supreme Court Justices Scalia and Kavanaugh. The plan for the Business Roundtable came to fruition with the very deliberate offering of Ronald Reagan to the public, who condemned big government and executed unfettered deregulation of big business through various policies. The rightward shift into deep neoliberalism dragged the entire country, including liberals, to the right. What follows was a pandering class of politicians, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, who now court the American public through the 1990s and into the 2000s with ideas normalizing big business takeover of American politics. Needless to say, the pro-business policy making for the last 40 years has completely undermined the working class, while they enjoy no appreciable gains in medium household income in the same amount of time. All the while, the only people that have profited are the mega-rich. There is no evidence from the last 40 years that trickle-down economics is a viable model of prosperity. In my opinion, the experiment should be over. Anderson touches on the Trump administration, the tax plan of 2017, which is a neoliberal tour de force that balloons public debt without seeing long-term gains for the average American. Trump is in both ways more of the same, but with a demagogue twist, right? He is clearly perpetrating the corporate self-interest of his predecessors while more blatantly using the tried-and-true scapegoats of nativism and racism to garner and, and kind of a consolidate public support. It goes without saying that the libertarian policymaking left us very ill-prepared for COVID-19. Besides the expert cataloging of the events I just talked about, Anderson in this book puts forth some interesting theories. He, he proposes that America has been in cultural stasis for 20 to 30 years without changing tastes. As opposed to the 1960s, 
Americans actually fear the future now and are very easily manipulated by the powerful, powerful force of nostalgia. Nostalgia for the imagined yesteryear of prosperity and stability. Marketers and politicians know this, and they capitalize on that nostalgic effect. I was really happy to find that Anderson offers some pretty good solutions. He argues that 2020, when this was written, is indeed an inflection point, but it's not the first inflection point we've ever had. We very clearly mirror conditions of the 1920s. There's no doubt that if the political economy doesn't have deliberate change, this system will break. It will break again, and it will continue to break. It'll, it'll probably break off. Anderson offers some familiar solutions, such as a much-needed wealth tax, increasing state taxes, estate taxes, which the 2010, Trump's 2017 tax plan completely got rid of, and then increasing corporate taxes. He also mentions UBI, universal basic income, and how Alaska has been thriving off of a corporate oil subsidy and has, and has been doing just fine with production. You know, The most poignant solution he offers was this. The public, the public must change from a binary ideological system. It's not that all regulation is bad or that all socialism is good or vice versa. Thriving modern societies live on a spectrum of both capitalistic and socialistic ideas that reign in one another. We must embrace ideological non-binary decision-making. For me, that is the key. And young people clearly think in more non-binary ways than, than their parents do. So I, I really did enjoy this book. He does a fantastic job of keeping you engaged. Uh, if you enjoy books like Dark Money by, uh, uh, what's her name, Meyer, Shock Doctrine by uh, Naomi Klein, or anything by Chomsky, you know, I do recommend this book. All right, I'm going to answer a question from TikTok. This is from at Frost13721. This person asks, what are your thoughts uh, at becoming the pro- What are your thoughts are beginning the process of becoming a doctor as a second career? I'm 32 and am thinking about starting. So it's a great question. So I mean, right off the bat, you, you can become a doctor at any age. You can go back to school at any age. There's no timeline. Don't don't let anyone think that you need to adhere to a timeline. Oh, I didn't do this at this time. I didn't do this at that time. The ship is sailed. There's no ship. There's, I mean, you, you get on it whenever you want. Um, so obviously there's going to be advantages and disadvantages about you do anything at any time of your life. You know, if you if you if you uh, if you start med school later, like at the age of 32. Uh, assuming you've already done four years of college, which you need in the United States, and then um, four years of med school on top of that, so you'd you know be what thirty six, and then a residency on top of that. If you did just internal medicine, that would just be three years, so you'd be thirty nine. But if you did something else like like uh, you know anesthesia or like neurosurgery or cardiothoracic surgery, you know you could be well into your forties, mid forties, before you even start um, practice, independent practice on your own. So what are the downsides of that? Well, if you have to take out loans, you are you're not for one thing you're not making a salary while you're a med student and while you're a resident. I mean, you are making as a resident, but it's not salary that you know it's just to live on. It's not much you can do with it. I couldn't save anything or pay off any loans, and then you're missing on other salary that you would have on another job. Um, so you could be missing on savings and and investment and things like that. And then. Um, and now you have, a, it's possible you have a lot of loans, and now you're in your 40s, and you're now beginning to pay off those loans. Often it can take 10 years to pay off those loans. And now you may be in a career that's lucrative enough that it that's, makes up for it, but not all, all, so physicians are well paid in the United States, but it's a huge range, right? It's a huge range. If you go into psychiatry or family medicine, that's, those are, that's low paying relatively. Now it's still a good job, it's still a good salary, all things considered. 
Um, so there's a lot of things to balance. It's not, you know, what I would say is it, you don't want to be held back just because, oh, society doesn't usually do that way. That's fine. Whatever. Do whatever you want. But you need to also balance it like, is this the right thing for you in your life? Do you have a family? Do you have children? Is it the right thing for them for you to do this? Um, if, you know, if someone's 32, whatever. I started med school when I was 25, a little bit later than a normal person. Still very young, of course. Um, and it worked out just, you know, really, really well for me. All right, that'll do it for uh, this week. Thanks for listening. Um, please re- leave a review uh, if you haven't already. That helps uh, expose the podcast to more people. Share it. Um, let me know if you have any ideas or if you have comments or feedback for me. My email is icudoctorecmo, E-C-M-O, at gmail. I'm on TikTok at, um, it's just icudoctor. And then Instagram, you can also direct DM me on Instagram at icudoctortiktok. And I usually get to most of those messages pretty quick. So thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. Have a good one. Thank you.